So, at, you know, we're kind of looking for something that might be a little different, a little off the beaten track, something a little fresh, some Christmas topic that I've never uh, addressed before. We've kind of tapped, at least I feel like, you know, we've kind of tapped all of the big players out. We've tapped out the wise men. We've tapped out Mary and Joseph. We've even tapped out Caesar Augustus and Herod. You know, we've had them, all, all the, uh, the regular cast of characters, Mary and Joseph, the shepherds. How many times have we spoken about the shepherds? So, um, you know, you start looking around, and uh, all of a sudden, I, I, I heard a message that someone was giving, and I thought, okay, that, that's good. Uh, that's, that is a topic, <clears throat> a Christmas topic, a, a serious Christmas topic that I have never uh, spoken on before or, or approached. And, uh, and, and it is, the, uh, the, the, the topic or the subject of uh, this message this morning is really, I would say, probably for most of us, the most common symbol about Christmas. It is the most visible symbol uh, that Christmas time brings, and it is obviously well represented here this morning um, because what I'm talking about is a Christmas tree, right? What is more central to our whole celebration of Christmas each year than the Christmas tree, right? But, and and uh, given, given that we have all these beautiful trees here, I certainly would want to take a moment to say thank you to all the ladies who came out and gentlemen who came out. I wonder if I could get everybody just to stand for a second so that we could tell you that we appreciate what you did. So if you're in here this morning and you were out and you were part of our little Christmas celebration, come on, stand up, don't be... Don't be overly humble. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Yep, thank you. Appreciate it. Make the church look beautiful uh, like this. But this, our subject, the Christmas tree, um, is perhaps the most common symbol about Christmas. Um, and let's face it, just the whole, the whole aspect of the tree for our Christmas celebration um, is really like the kickoff. To the whole thing, right? Usually sometime near Thanksgiving, right after Thanksgiving, if you're a certain kind of person, you want to run out and get your tree. You see people driving along, they got their tree roped to the top of their car. And so it's the first move though, right? It's kind of the, it, it initiates, it kicks off the entire Christmas season. If you have kids and family, everybody piles in the car. You go to where they sell Christmas trees or cut down Christmas trees or sell them or, you know, like a Costco or whatever, but you got to get the tree, right? The tree, I mean, just think, just think how odd it would be if in your Christmas season, you just didn't have a tree, right? It's just, it's almost unimaginable. So the Christmas tree is a major part of our, it's, it's a, like the centerpiece. And, um, and there, there are few aspects of our entire Christmas season that get more attention than, than procuring the tree, getting it, picking it out, got to be the right tree. We have certain parameters that we would uh, judge a Christmas tree's worth by. And I want to cover some of those things this morning because I found a piece online that uh, may be helpful because you can kind of know a whole lot about your personality by the Christmas tree that you pick. And so I thought just as a starting point to kind of usher us into this theme of Christmas trees and the significance of a Christmas tree. Um, this article was entitled, What Does Your Christmas Tree Say About Your Personality? So we have a couple of uh, thoughts on that. So whether you prefer a real 
or an artificial tree or a Charlie Brown tree or the biggest tree that you can find or the biggest tree in the world. Your Christmas tree says something. Your choice of a Christmas tree says something about the person that you are. <clears throat> so you can kind of do a little psychological, you do a little head shrink on, uh, with this part of our message here this morning to see what uh, any of this may mean to you. So you may be the kind of person who um, has to have the star on top of your Christmas tree. Maybe that's you. Got to have the big golden star. And if that's true of you, the best three words, according to this article, to describe you are, you are moral, you are a leader, you are strong. As a person who likes a star on top of the tree, you place a large amount of stock in destiny and following your guiding star. You have a strong belief system. You often look for signs around you to point you in the right direction. Many times you think of yourself perhaps as somewhat of a guiding star yourself because of your strength of leadership and um, and, and your, your moral compass and all of that. People will come to you. You help to, uh, to uh, lead them in the, direct, in the right direction. So um, if you are a star on top type of person, um, that's, that says some specific things about who you are. Or maybe you're not a star on top, but you're an angel on top. Maybe you're an angel on top person. Okay, a little picture of that. There's Lorraine and I <laughs> doing our Christmas tree. But if you're an angel on top, the best three words to describe you are spiritual, kind, and charitable. Putting an angel atop your tree shows that you have strong you that you have a strong spiritual side and that you're not afraid to let the world know that you are a spiritual spiritually minded person. You are a kind soul who knows how to take care of others and make them feel special. People will often turn to you in times of need. They know you have a charitable heart and that you will be there to support them if you are an angel on the top of a tree type person. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. <clears throat> we got more options here this morning. Maybe you are an artificial tree person, okay? Here's our image for the artificial tree. The best three words to describe you are <clears throat> practical, planner, organized. Yeah? Can I get a witness here this morning? Right? Can we get an amen? Whether you pick the artificial tree because you don't like the mess of pine needles or because you don't like chopping down live trees, your choice points to you being extremely practical in nature. It makes much more sense to you to invest in something that will last year after year, showing that you are a long-term planner. At the end of the holidays, you can stay neat and organized by putting your tree away quickly and easily in the nice big box that it came out of just a mere few weeks ago. <clears throat> so maybe you're an artificial tree person. I think it's funny because uh, I am none of those things in terms of organization or practical, but I am definitely an artificial tree person. I don't want to even know about going out and cutting it down and bringing it home and needles all over the place. No, no. <clears throat> I want the lights already on it. <clears throat> I want it all tricked out. You know, it, it, you practically pull it out of the box these days, and it's pretty much there. And then you throw a few more things on. Anyway, all right, so, but maybe you're not an artificial tree person. Maybe you're one of the following. You are a too-big-for-the-room Christmas tree person. <clears throat> There's your Christmas tree, because when you went looking for a Christmas tree, you forgot to take your tape measure. The best three words to describe you if you are a too big for the room person, you are ambitious, 
grand and unafraid. When picking out a tree, you're never worried that it will be too big. Your ambitious personality reassures you that you can, in fact, make it work. You like to dream big, never afraid of failure. Your mind works on a much more global scale. In fact, you don't worry about failure because you don't think of your mistakes as failures. Your extra big Christmas tree is simply an expression of your grandiose nature. So maybe you are a too big for the room person. How about this? I'll bet you we got some of these. Maybe you are a Charlie Brown Christmas tree person. This is Lorraine's father. Every year, Lorraine's father would like find the absolutely most pathetic, scrawniest, most unappealing, unattractive <coughs> tree, <coughs> excuse me, and then throw a bunch of stuff on it, and that was, it was just kind of a thing for him. Maybe it's a thing for you, too. If you are, here we have a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Maybe you just like take some local plant in your house and put a couple of you know, green things on it or red things on it, like that's good enough. Uh, or maybe you're a Charlie Brown person. The best three words to describe you are unique, quirky, and optimistic. Like Charlie Brown, who was drawn to the tiniest of saplings, you are a person who can find the good in any situation. You are a glass is half full kind of a person. You aren't afraid to think outside the box, showing off your creative, one-of-a-kind imagination. People are often drawn to you for your quirky sense of style and humor. You're a fun and funny person to be around if you are a Charlie Brown Christmas tree type of person. But maybe you are the perfectly symmetrical Christmas tree type of person. Everything has to be just so. The best three words to describe you are deliberate, structured, and visual. As someone who likes things to appear just right, you rely on your strong visual aesthetic. You enjoy structure and probably thrive in the environment where discipline and order are part of the description. You also don't make decisions lightly. You choose each word, each action, and each decoration with extreme care. So maybe you are a perfectly symmetrical Christmas tree type person, but maybe not. And so here's a couple more for your, whoops. Maybe you are the person who, get, who has a Christmas tree that is laden down with a ton of lights. And if that's you, the best words to describe you are outgoing, colorful, and bold. Unafraid to let your true light shine, you think of your tree just as you think of your personality. Big, bright, bold. You are a performer at heart and definitely don't shy away from being the center of attention. Your outgoing nature makes you fun to be around, and your ability to tell a great story or a joke makes you a hoot at holiday parties. If you are a person with tons of lights on your tree, or a couple more, you are a person with everything but the kitchen sink on your tree. That is everything you've ever bought for Christmas, everything that you ever got, for Christmas, it all goes on your tree every year. Here's kind of a picture. I could, probably could have done a little better with these pictures, but it all takes time, believe me. But the best three words, if you are an everything but the kitchen sink type of a person, the best three words to describe you are over the top, fun, and carefree. You're going to put every last light and decoration on that tree, and you don't care what anyone sells or thinks about it. You're going to make sure that it is the most ostentatious thing that anyone has ever seen. 
and you're going to have a great time while you decorate. You have a fun-loving and carefree spirit. People love spending time with you because they know it will always be a blast to be with you around Christmas time. So maybe you are everything but the kitchen sink. And then finally, one more, and this probably will speak to many here this morning. Perhaps you are a traditional Christmas tree person. You just like it just so. If you are a traditional Christmas tree person and it just needs to kind of be what it's always been, the best three words to describe you are comfortable, homey, and secure. If you like to do things the old-fashioned way with your tree, it's only because you love the simple comforts that come along with tradition. You value your friends and your family highly, preferring a night in with loved ones over a night on the town with strangers. You possess a great confidence about your preferences. You know what feels good, and you're sticking to it. So maybe you're a traditionalist. So all these different kind of options for what a Christmas tree might say about our personality. So back to our matter at hand here this morning. Enough digression into the possible psychological meaning of the choice of a Christmas tree. Um, But given how prominent Christmas trees are, we must ask the question, what does a decorated evergreen tree, what does a lowly pine tree have to do with Christmas time at all? Now, there are some people, perhaps you've met them. If you've, if you've been a believer long enough, you probably have. I know I have a number of times. And, and in saying this, because this might even describe somebody who's here this morning, um, and I don't mean to say this to be um, rude or... Uh, to anybody or to, to uh, say something um, about the way, you, the, the way you choose to celebrate Christmas, right? But there are some people would answer that question, what does a pine tree have to do with Christmas? They would say absolutely nothing at all. It has zero to do with, Christi- with Christmas. As a matter of fact, I've had people <clears throat> tell me this, maybe you have too. Some people would say Christmas trees are just downright pagan. It's just a pagan symbol that was brought in as many pagan symbols were brought into the church um, around 300 AD when Constantine became the emperor and Constantine claimed to have a conversion experience and then everybody in Rome wanted wanted to be like the emperor so everybody joined the church and into the church flooded everything. Everything that was part of pagan Rome was now part of Christian Rome and the church in Rome because many of the people who were coming into the church were just doing it for personal reasons, popularity and things of that nature. So some people would say Christmas trees are downright condemned by the word of God. These anti-tree people will present you with a scripture which they say completely condemns the whole practice of having Christmas trees. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 10 and if you have not ever heard any of this before, this will be interesting to you because this is a a scripture that people will base the fact that they think that Christmas trees don't belong in the homes and houses of people who are believing people because they come from a pagan source. We're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 10, and here's what the Lord spoke through Jeremiah to the people of Israel, okay? He said, hear ye the word Oh, and I I also chose to uh, render it to you in the King James Version because it sounds the most condescending. You know, the language in it is the most off-putting, okay? Instead of Gentiles, it's heathen. 
right? Definitely some connotations with, you know, the word in Hebrew is goyim, the, the goyim. Um, but that word is translated in more modern translations are a little nicer, a little more gentle with the word they translated as Gentiles. But in the old King James, it was just downright heathen. Okay, so here we go. Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the heathen are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen, with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. So people who, have, who will quote this verse to you will, will offer you that portion of Scripture and go, See, I told you. Christmas trees are in the Bible, and God hates Christmas trees, and he doesn't want anybody to have a Christmas tree because, you see, he's condemning this whole practice of people going out into the woods and cutting down a tree, and then bringing the cut-down tree back home, and then having to nail it to something so that it can stand up, and then putting silver and gold um, on it. Like, obviously, God hates pagan Christmas trees, okay? That would be the point of view. Um, <clears throat> But this statement, there, there are really two major problems with drawing that conclusion from this particular statement. The first is that this is a statement by, written by or spoken by Jeremiah, who happened to live 600 years, 600 plus years before Jesus even came. He, he lived 600 years before there is even a Christmas or ever even was a Christmas. And so he certainly isn't writing it with, with this in mind um, as, as far as something to apply to our Christmas season. And secondarily, this scripture has nothing to do with Christmas at all. This scripture has everything to do with idolatry. Idolatry is the context. Jeremiah had a, a very difficult assignment. God had charged him with warning of the impending catastrophe that was about to happen to the people of Israel. Jeremiah is preaching in the seventh century BC. The, the, the people in the northern 10 tribes within the last um, 100 years, let's say, or, or 50 to 70 years of, of Jeremiah's tenure as a prophet, the people of the northern 10 tribes of Israel have been defeated, subjugated, and taken away captive. They've been replaced by the Assyrian people who then mingle with, the, with those that are left over. And this is actually where the Samaritan people come from. The Samaritans are half Assyrians and half Jewish, which is why they were rejected in other stories that you're familiar with in the Bible. <clears throat> and so those people had already been judged, and severely judged, and had been taken out, uh, punished by God and taken and had been exiled. They never came back. They just scattered. And, and the, the same thing is about to happen to the people of Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes in the southern portion of Judah. And Jeremiah is the prophet who is charged with telling the people that this is coming, and when it comes, they're going to have to yield to it. And it didn't make him a very popular guy. It made him sound like a, a complete traitor. Basically, he was saying, you're going to have to surrender to this. You're going to have to acquiesce to this. This is from God, and there's nothing that you can, you, you can do to stop it. So the northern ten tribes had already been crushed because of their idolatry. They'd been taken out captive. Judah and Benjamin remained, and the judgment of God was, um, was imminent. And in this passage, God is really pointing at the, one of the problems that is 
uh, one of the serious problems that is um, his reason for uh, needing to judge them, and it's idolatry. And in this passage, God is kind of speaking about this whole practice of what they do because they, 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 create, they were creating an idol. They would go into the woods and find themselves a nice tree, and then they'd cut the tree down, then they'd bring it home, then they'd nail something to it so it would stand up nice and straight, and then they would put some gold and stuff like that, and then they would worship it. They would pray to it. And that was the, the process. And, and it's interesting, as we go further into this verse a little, little bit more here, here's how God mocks it. He says, they are upright as the palm tree. But speak not, they must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither uh, also is it in them to do good. In other words, God is saying, look, it. you go into the woods, you cut down a tree, you bring the tree home, you fix it up a little bit, you carve it a little bit, you make it pretty, you put some gold on it, you put some silver on it, then you kneel down and you pray to it. But have you forgotten that you're the person that went out and cut the tree down? And this thing can't hear you, it can't see you, it can't speak to you, it can't move it about. It is absolutely useless and functionless. The, it, the only thing that gives it any power or energy at all is you. It is entirely a man-made thing. It is entirely a, 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 a work of human effort, and it could, not, it could not benefit or help them, nor could it harm them, nor could it hurt them in any particular way. So the passage has really nothing to do with Christmas tree, at least this one in Jeremiah 10, is not. So take a, take a deep breath. Breathe a sigh of relief that you don't have to go home and throw your Christmas tree in the garbage because it, is, it isn't a pagan symbol unless, of course, you pray to it or worship it. But I'm inclined to think that that probably is not true of anybody here. Um, this, there, is a tr- there is a tradition here in America in the 17th century. America was actually, um, the people of America were forbidden and outlawed to publicly celebrate Christmas. Did you know that? Because they were afraid, it was, it was banned in the Puritan community. The Puritans reacted to all of these kinds of ostentatious things that were coming in the church. That's why they were called the Puritans. They wanted it pure. They wanted it stripped down to the bone. So there was a season of time in which um, um, American, Americans were um, publicly forbidden to celebrate Christmas. Now, granted, most of us, when we look at a Christmas tree... Um, are not thinking uh, about worshiping it or any of the other things that, that people would say are, are negative about the, uh, the Christmas tree. Most of us, when we are looking at a Christmas tree, are thinking primarily about one thing, and that is gifts, right? And, the, and usually the younger we are, the more it's about that, right? I, I, I was the kid probably many of you were too, that I didn't sleep. I'm sure I never slept on Christmas Eve, just like all night long. And then when when I assumed that everybody was in bed and asleep, I would kind of like go into the room and check it out and look at all um, all of those Christmas presents, particularly the ones that were with my name on them. Very exciting, right? And uh, I actually brought as a prop here this morning, this is my oldest Christmas present. Believe it or not, this Christmas present goes back to probably when I'm about 10 or 12 years old. <laughs> when I was 10 or 12 years old, the Dead Sea was only sick. So that's, that give you a bit of feel for that. Right, but my oldest Christmas present, right here. And when I got it, it was kind of like, uh, but I had an aunt and an uncle. And these aunt and uncle, they were like, 
um, like intellectual type people. My uncle was a research chemist, scientist. Uh, you know, the whole family was real brainy. And so for Christmas, they gave me, when I was maybe 10 or 12 years old, a Webster's New World Dictionary. Right? Which, at 10 or 12 years old, was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> wow, thank you. Next. Right? Um, it's funny how it turns out in the long run, that's a pretty good Christmas present. If, it's, if it now has lasted whatever, 60 some odd years, that, that's pretty cool. So, um, so generally the, the, the Christmas tree brings to mind the whole, the idea of gift giving and presents of, or, or it is very associated with all of that. So we have to ask the question, where did the Christmas tree, from where did the Christmas tree originate? Uh, little hint, it was not from Babylon. It was not from Macy's. It is not Rockefeller Center. Okay, where does the Christmas tree come from? Well, it actually, come, it actually comes down to us through the Protestant Reformation. There was, there's a thing that I have here this morning. I, I could read it or I could just try to um, share it. There was a, a, custom, a practice that was customary, particularly in Christian Western Europe, um, between, let's say, the 5th century and, the, and up to the Protestant Reformation, <clears throat> and then for years thereafter. And it was something that was known as the paradise tree. It, the paradise tree was a celebration that, um, that, that Christians would have each year because the church had determined that December the 24th was the Feast of Adam and Eve. Okay, so December 24th at this time in history was the Feast of Adam and Eve. And so people would um, set up this thing that they called a paradise tree. And a paradise tree was there to tell the story of, the, uh, of paradise lost. That they would tell the story, they would set up this, this paradise tree, they would put apples on it, and usually they would get one that was like an evergreen tree because the other trees were all barren and bare by that time of the year. So they'd cut down an evergreen tree and then they'd take apples and they would hang the apples and, this, and then they would put candles all around the thing and this would give the opportunity, let's say in a family or in a setting, um, to, to actually tell the story of what had happened to Adam and Eve because of course people at this time are illiterate so they don't have Bibles, they don't read Bibles. And so that around this whole practice came uh, this practice of mystery plays. And there were people who were like professional actors who would go from town to town. As the whole thing grew, it became more and more of a production. And people would go around and do this mystery play. And they would bring this paradise tree. And so it was something that came, in, came to be part of the culture of, of Western Europe from, you know, during the Middle Ages time. And around the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther got a great idea. He, he said that he was walking out one night through the forest, the Bavarian forest, looking up, stars all out, and moon and everything. And he was looking up at the trees and seeing like all the lights tinkling in between the limbs of the trees and stuff like that. And he thought, you know, we, the, 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 um, this uh, paradise tree ought to have a different message. It, yes, it's important to tell the message of Adam and Eve and their disobedience and the, and, and the fact that humanity is now lost and, and sinful and broken and all that kind of stuff, but there ought to be a way to talk about the fact that Jesus has come into the world to redeem us from the effects of this curse so that we are no longer living with the result of paradise lost, but paradise now has been regained. So he, he, he said if, if you really want to have a... Um, a Christmas tree that's proper, you would put things on it that would be things of life. You would put 
candles on it. Now, so if you really want to be like full tilt retro, and you really want to, you know, you want to do the real thing, you'll, you'll have to put candles on it, but you may want to talk to the fire marshal just prior to that, because it could be a little dangerous. But anyway, this was how, this is how the whole thing came along, and this was really the precursor to the modern um, Christmas tree, because they would put this in their home, they would tell the story on the Feast of um, Adam and Eve on the 24th of December, and, uh, and, and so, but then it also became an opportunity to talk about what, um, what Jesus did in terms of reversing this whole process of, of the curse. And, and, and even with the lights, like Martin Luther King, or Martin Luther King, Martin Luther said that um, uh, in the prologue of John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him, nothing has been made, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And here's the, the, the excellent verse. And the darkness has never been able to extinguish it. Okay? So into this lost world comes the light of the world. I'm singing about this morning, right? And so Martin Luther is thinking, the tree ought to reflect this. It ought to reflect salvation. It ought to reflect something that's joyful, the hope that we now have in, uh, in, in Christ. And so... It, it kind of changed the, uh, the, the event from something that was kind of a, a, a sad look backwards at, at Paradise Lost to something that was looking forward to the redemption of Christ. As a matter of fact, what we're going to talk about here this morning will be three trees. You really can, you, you really can describe the entire history of humanity by talking about three trees. So there's that tree that was in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate from the, the tree, the fruit of that tree, and of course that was the downfall of mankind, but it's not the, uh, fortunately it's not the end of the story. So, the, so the, the, that's kind of the history of, the, of, of where the Christmas tree originated from, or where, where it came from. Um, there's also a history behind the giving of gifts. Now someone may think, of course there's history behind the giving of gifts, because how about the story of the Magi? That's certainly a story about the giving of gifts because here are these three astrologers, these wise men, these guys who, who study um, the stars and all of that. They, they get this message and they are told to follow the star and the star brings them to Jerusalem and you know the whole story. We tell it every, every uh, Christmas time. And, um, and when they come, they finally get to where Jesus is. Now, of course, it's important that you would know that they do not come to Bethlehem. Right? If they had come to Bethlehem, they would have gotten it wrong because Jesus is no longer in a manger in Bethlehem by the time they come. It's probably two years after his birth. Jesus is a little toddler at this particular point by the time the, um, the wise men show up. And they have three gifts to give. They have gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All have unique symbolism and meaning for the family and the Christ child. But um, there's, there's that aspect of, of giving. But there's um, the real... The real uh, aspect of giving gifts at Christmas really goes back to the 4th century AD uh, to a Christian minister. He was a bishop who lived in the, air, in the uh, area of Myra in Anatolia, which is, called, which is modern day Turkey. His name was Nicholas, and he was the bishop of Myra. And he loved the poor, and he had a charitable heart, big heart, 
for poor people and for poor children. So he would give food to people. Um, and he would give fuel to help them out, to warm their homes. Or he'd give presents and toys to the children. He was so beloved. Um, and he became so popular that after he died, they, the people um, who knew him picked up, on the pro- picked up on his custom of giving gifts. And every year on his feast day, they would give gifts to one another. Now, his, fe- his feast, um, after he was declared to be a saint, his feast was um, in the Roman side of the Catholic Church, the Western side of the Catholic Church. feast was on December the 6th. His feast day is on December the 19th in the Eastern side of the Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox side of the Church. But his feast is all tied in with Advent, with the coming of Christ. And so he, be- he is the one who really became kind of the symbolic for um, for this whole process, this whole aspect of uh, gift giving. As people went on, um, people began to kind of emulate even his style and his look because he was a bishop. He had the garments, he had the robes, he had the mitre, he had the whole deal. And so all of that stuff became part of the celebration. People would dress up like him. And uh, so it, 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 it just came to be like a, a wonderful custom all based upon St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas, the... Um, the Dutch people would speak his name like this, Saint Niklaus, Saint Niklaus. And then that kind of got shortened down to Sinta Kolos, Sinta Kolos. And then, of course, you can hear the, the way it ultimately became Santa Claus, right? And Saint Nicholas, Saint Niklaus becomes Sinta Niklaus or whatever. You get the point, right? Um, but... This was the. Um, uh, this is how the whole thing morphed from being something that really had a godly center, a, a godly starting point. A man who had a charitable uh, heart, a, a guy that loved Jesus and wanted to do good in the name of Jesus, and uh, so it kind of got passed down through the years. And Saint Nicholas becomes Santa Claus, and that's kind of the origin of our our, our gift giving. Now. So that's where it originates from. It, it demonstrates this whole aspect of the love of God. The, um, this, this process of, give, of gift giving is, is fundamental to the whole message of Christ coming at this time of the year because it says in John 3.16, for God so loved that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him should not perish. You know that verse of scripture. So, um, the real question is not, the, not how it originated and, what, and, and not necessarily what did it demonstrate, but how should we celebrate? How should believers in the modern world celebrate Christmas? And the answer is by letting the Christmas tree point us to another tree. By letting the Christmas tree point us to the Calvary tree. The Calvary tree, the tree that Jesus gave his life on at Calvary is how God sees Christmas. The Calvary tree is God's Christmas tree. <clears throat> it's not a fir tree. It only has two branches. One goes this way and one goes this way. And it is on that Calvary tree that Jesus offered his life. And that Calvary tree is what allows us to move. Let's, let's suppose that this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there in the Garden of Eden Right, and so terrible things happen there at that, uh, at that location, and uh, time goes along. But then Jesus comes, and Jesus reverses, because it said, Jesus reverses all of the curse that was 
uh, the result from our earliest parents eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all of the wreckage, all of the sin, all of the brokenness, all of the disaster of human history is all resulting from that. But it, if we let these three trees speak to us and let our Christmas tree be kind of a symbol, which it really is. Now, this is really where it came from. And so it's, it's really just a matter for us to kind of tune ourselves back in to, um, to understand or, or to, uh, to celebrate our, our holiday in a fashion that is consistent with what Scripture is about and not necessarily, and certainly not just get caught up in this crazy commercial thing. I am, I am to- totally persuaded that Christmas would be banned from our culture if it was not an opportunity to make the kind of money that it makes, right? No one, our, our culture would, would want to eradicate everything about Christmas. Are you kidding? God who is born into this world, who comes down, you know what I mean? Like, no, no, none of this, right? So Christmas would be long gone if it was an opportunity for, for people to make a lot of money, and we don't want to get caught up in that. But if we can allow the Christmas, um, the Christmas season to remind us, the Christmas tree, to remind us of the other tree, the tree that was on Calvary. That's God's Christmas tree. Tree comes up in many places in the Bible. Here's a passage from, where is it, 2 Peter 2.24, just, just to remind us of the connection. It says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. You see, on that tree, and a few weeks ago we were praying for healing for people, and part of our service we quoted this verse of Scripture and also where it comes from in Isaiah chapter 53. But what happens on the cross, that's the ultimate healing. You may get a healing in this life, but it's not going to be the ultimate one. You may be sick, you may you know, have some type of an affliction, and we may pray for you, and God is merciful, God is good, and you get healed, but still, one of these days, something's going to take you out. Amen? What happened to my scripture? Get back on there, right? Something's going to take you out. But what happened for us on the cross is the ultimate healing. It is the ultimate expression of God's love. It was Jesus who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. So what we want is for the, for the tree of the cross that Jesus gave his life on, we want, that to, um, we want that to be the focal point between that tree over there because the tree of life, if you, if you remember the story, after Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were banished from remaining in the garden. And the reason God said they were, the reason God speaks directly and says there, there will be a problem now, now they'll go and they will eat from the tree of life and they will be lost forever. They will be eternally lost. And so in order to keep them from being eternally lost, God banished them from the Garden of Eden so that they couldn't go back and eat of the tree of life, which was in the Garden of Eden. But the tree of life again pops up for us when we get to the end of the Bible. We get to this, the book of Revelation, and there in the book of Revelation, I think in the 20th chapter, once again, we 20 or 21st chapter, we have the, the tree of life, and it is for the healing of the nations. And so that the journey from the tree that brought evil and sin and, de- and destruction 
to the place where the tree of life is, which we will someday eat because that tree is for the healing of the nations. Are you looking forward to that? Man, am I ever looking forward to that. But the whole thing comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so there are these three trees that really speak to us about the work of God. So when you see a a Christmas tree and, and you see all of its beauty, what we should be thinking about is, yeah, this is meant to show the transition. Okay, it wasn't the paradise tree. It used to be the paradise tree, but then somebody got wise. Somebody figured it out. And it's like, no, we're not going to leave it there. And, that's, and that is why it's, it's so cool to decorate our Christmas trees with things that reflect the beauty of what Christ did for us on the cross. Simple, right? Just a simple way of, of us being reminded of what Jesus did on the tree um, on which <clears throat> he died. So when you see a Christmas tree and it's beautiful, let it remind you of God's plan to get you from the damage done by the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to the ultimate healing provided by the tree of life. Remember the book of Romans in verse five and verse eight, or, or um, chapter five and verse eight, it says, for, for perhaps for a good man, someone might dare to die, but God has demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, Santa Claus, no, but St. Nicholas, yeah, all that you want. Bring him on into the, to the Christmas tree. Think of, it, think of it as a paradise tree reconfigured with hosts and cookies and delicious sustaining uh, treats. I was thinking it reminded me of, a, of an old hymn that I love. Uh, I think we probably even tried to work it into our repertoire one time. It's called We're Marching to Zion, and it says, The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach Emmanuel's land, before we reach Emmanuel's land or walk on golden streets or walk on golden streets. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. And so, it, but it's taken us from the tree to the tree and then ultimately to that final tree where we'll eat of the tree of life for the healing of the nations. Man, that's, that's a good word, right? That's a good word. So that's how we kind of reconfigure these Christmas trees to no longer be objects of materialism and covetousness and grasping and greed, but now they are a reminder of the wonderful work that God has done uh, on our behalf. <clears throat> There's a, a, a story that I had heard um, a uh, story of a little boy who lived in England, and I'll cl- close with this, and then we'll, we'll take time to do communion. The little boy was walking around in his town, and suddenly he, got, he became lost. And aren't these things something else? Um, so he was lost, and now he's walking around, and he's going further and further in, and having no idea where he's going. He's getting more upset and more terrified by the you know, by the fact that he has no idea where he is and where he's going. And finally, he's just so upset that he just sits down somewhere on the steps of a building and just starts to cry. So a cop who was walking by happened to see the little boy crying. He says, son, what's the matter? And so the kid says, I don't know where I am. I'm lost. I can't find my way home. And all upset. And so, and so the policeman started to um, name sections of the city. Do you live in this section? Do you live in that section? And the kid, the little boy, knew nothing of the sections of the city and the names of the different sections of the city, so he wasn't responding to any of that. He said, well, how about, uh, how about a business? What about, what about this store? Do you live anywhere by this store? And, and he didn't know that store, and he didn't know any of the other stores, and just wasn't responding to, 
to uh, the clues that the, uh, that, that the cop was trying to give him to, uh, to help find uh, his way back home. And he said, well, what about streets? He started naming different streets and stuff like that. The little boy didn't know anything about the streets. And finally, the cop got an idea. Because in the middle of the town, or in a section of the town, there was a church. The church had like a really high steeple. It stood up above every other thing. And on the top of that steeple, there was a cross. And so he said, hey, son, come here for a second. He said, do you see that steeple over there where that cross is? And the boy's eyes lit right up. And he said, do you live anywhere near that? And he said, yeah, yeah, I live, I live right by that. He said, just get me to the cross. I'll find my way home from there. You want to write that one down. If there's anything that is true, just get me to the cross, and I will find my way home from there. Right? What we're going to celebrate this morning and, and remember this morning in terms of our our communion celebration, is exactly that. It is designed to do exactly that, to bring us back to the cross, to bring us to the remembrance of who Jesus is and what he's done, and to, and to glory, to glory in the benefits conferred. You know what I mean? Like, to glory in it. You know, Paul says, God forbid that I should boast or glory, save in the cross of Jesus Christ by which I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. God forbid that I would glory in any other thing. He said, all those things that I had before, which were which were so coveted and so important to the people of my culture and my community, all those things, I just count them just dung. They are worth nothing for the excellency of the high calling of Christ Jesus. And so we glory this morning in the forgiveness. Know that with this communion, know that you're forgiven, like totally forgiven, completely forgiven. It's really gone. It was totally paid for. It isn't a probation that we're on. It is complete and absolute cleansing from everything so that we are now a pure and spotless and holy thing before God. You probably, you're probably thinking, I don't feel like a pure and spotless and holy thing. And let's face it, who is? But the reality of what Christ has done makes it possible to transcend this broken world and all of its failures and flaws and enables us to come into that place where we have been accepted by the, uh, in the Beloved according to Ephesians chapter 1. So let's get, our, let's, let's get our head wrapped around this for a little while. Take a couple of minutes we're to, um, to examine ourselves. And let's think about that cross, and then we'll just impose, superimpose that on the, uh, on the Christmas tree.